Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, in prior episodes, I used to begin with a big idea or a major theme that ran through a particular book of the Bible. Now, when we're talking about the life of Jesus, we're talking about his public ministry as depicted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the big idea of the four Gospels is Jesus. He is the good news. So without him, there would not be any Gospels. Now, that being said, there is a major theme that runs through all four Gospels, especially Matthew. And that theme is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, that simply refers to the reign of the heavenly realm over the earth. Right now, as it exists, there are powers and principalities that are allowed to rule over the earthly realm. There are governments, there are institutions, and there are several natural sources of power that exercise control in the earthly realm. However, with the second coming of Christ, there will be a literal material invasion of the earthly realm by the kingdom of heaven. And it's this invasion which will usher in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At that point in time, there will be an establishment of a literal kingdom of heaven here on earth, and that kingdom will stand forever. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the church or the unified body of believers that profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are a part of the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven is not comprised in total exclusively of the church. That is to say that the church doesn't equal the kingdom of heaven, but is part of it. My family and I, for example, we live in Queens, which is a borough of New York City and which is a small component of the state of New York. So in the same way that Queens does not equal all of New York, the church does not equal all of the kingdom of heaven. It is simply a part of it. And as emissaries or as believers in Christ who are members of the church, as representatives of the kingdom of heaven, we go out into the world preaching and teaching the gospel as a means to recruit or as a means to bring new converts into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important to note here in Christ's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what he essentially does is give the law of the kingdom of heaven in providing moral, ethical, and behavioral principles. Now, overall, the four Gospels detail the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That being said, a bulk of the Gospels focus on what Jesus said and did during his public ministry in the final three years of his life. What the Gospels do, however, is they will speed up or slow down in the chronology of Christ's life in order to focus on events situations or circumstances that they like to draw our attention to. So, for example, when we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, we see in Luke chapter 1, there's a prophecy and a foretelling of John the Baptist being born, and he is. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus Christ is born, and at the end of chapter 2, we fast forward 12 years later to when Jesus Christ is 12, and we have an episode of him, Mary, and Joseph in the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover. 
Chapter 3 then begins, roughly speaking, 18 years later, with the public ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism by the River Jordan. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil, and then from the second half of Luke chapter 4 to Luke 19.28, we basically have 15 chapters of Jesus Christ's life and public ministry, where he goes in and throughout the area we call today modern Israel, teaching and preaching the Word of God. So in essence, these 15 chapters rehearse and go over what Jesus Christ taught and preached over the course of three years. And it's important to remember that Jesus didn't give one teaching once, nor did he tell one parable once. So when we compare what Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are minor discrepancies and small deviations into the exact wording and the phraseology that Jesus used. And the explanation for that is simple. When Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, for example, this was a parable that he told many, many times in many, many different places to diverse and voluminous crowds. Back then, podcasts, DVDs, and MP3s did not exist, so in order for Jesus to preach and teach the gospel, he had to literally make sure people heard it wherever they were. So, from Luke chapter 4 to 19, we have roughly speaking a detail of what Jesus said and did during his three years of public ministry. And then in the final five chapters of Luke, the timeline slows down. In Luke 19:28, Jesus enters in Jerusalem. In Luke 22, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. In Luke 22:39, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is then arrested and stands trial. In Luke 23, he stands before Pilate and then Herod. He's crucified and then he's buried. And then in Luke 24, there are eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that gives you a broad snapshot of Christ's life. So now let's zoom in and focus on specific situations and scenarios. So at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, we are told about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ's baptism by the River Jordan is essentially his public ordination service or his commissioning and anointing by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah or as the Mashiach. Because when Luke writes about Christ's baptism in Luke chapter 3, he puts the actual baptism of Christ in a subordinate clause in Greek, meaning what's important there isn't the fact that Christ is baptized What's important is his anointing by the Holy Spirit as heaven opens and the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the most important point of Christ's baptism is his anointing or his covering or his imbuement of power by the Holy Spirit to start his public ministry in which he preaches the good news or the gospel to those who are deficient in the truth. Now in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus Christ's public ministry gets started, he actually doesn't begin in doing anything in public. Rather, he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness in private. And in order to understand the temptation of Christ, we have to go back to Genesis 3, when Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, and compare and contrast. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam had a companion, he had Eve, he was tempted in the middle of paradise where there was no scarcity and he had no want, and the devil came in the form of a serpent. 
and essentially he failed the test by believing the lie of the serpent and trusting in something other than God. Jesus now, in contrast, in Luke chapter 4, he is now the second Adam, and he succeeded where the first Adam failed. Jesus was alone in the wilderness. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before the temptation, meaning biologically he was famished and he was hungry, and he wasn't tempted by a serpent. He was tempted by the devil in full unveiled form. In Genesis 3, the serpent was very subtle and tried to cleverly lure Adam and Eve away from God and into sin. But when Jesus was tempted in Luke chapter 4, the attack was explicit, it was obvious, it was full on, it directly challenged Christ's identity as the Son of God, and it directly challenged the trustworthiness of God and His promises. Now in both instances, both in Genesis 3 and Luke 4, the devil's method of attack didn't change at all. What the devil tried to do in both the situation with Adam and Eve and with Christ is he tried to make them doubt the reliability of God's word. He tried to make them doubt that God was powerful, that God was trustworthy, and that God was good. Both the serpent in Genesis 3 and the devil in Luke 4 essentially were asking the question, can you really trust God? And Jesus' answer in Luke chapter 4 was a resounding yes. He repeated three times the phrase, it is written, which essentially means the Bible says. So Jesus refuted and relied on the truth of God's word in order to guard and defend himself against satanic attacks. And in Jesus saying it is written, he essentially was saying, yes, I really can trust God. And Jesus was telling us, yes, you really can trust the Lord. And it's Christ's total reliance on God's word that not only reveals his own fidelity to his father, but also reveals how we are to rely completely and totally on the truth, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of God's word found in the Bible. Now, the other thing I want to draw your attention to in Luke chapter 4 is that the devil weaponized God's word against God's word when tempting Jesus. Meaning, the devil took one specific Bible verse and then used it out of context in an attempt to put it face to face and up against other portions of God's word. And how Jesus responded is he responded using the totality or the coherent truth of all of God's word so that one verse did not have ultimate meaning, but the whole of God's truth was used to interpret a part of it. It's important to realize that interplay because the conflict between Christ and the forces of Satan is a conflict that would play out throughout the remainder of Christ's public ministry. So although his direct temptation by the devil would end when Luke chapter 4 closes, throughout Christ's ministry, he would go head-to-head -head with religious leaders whom he would call snakes and broods of vipers. In other words, religious folk who also use the strategy of weaponizing God's word to subject and to crush people. In Phariseeism, for example, people did not trust ultimately in God. They trusted ultimately in their own works. For scripture reference for Jesus calling religious leaders snakes and broods of vipers, see Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 23, 33, and John 8:44. Now, immediately after Christ's temptation in Luke chapter 4, he gets to work, he returns to Galilee, and in his public ministry, he essentially was a traveling preacher, 
and Bible teacher going in and through the towns, villages, and cities of what was then Judea, what we would call modern-day Israel. In Christ's inaugural address, he reads a scroll from Isaiah 61, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he applies that prophecy from Isaiah 61 to himself. And in other words, Christ was saying that I am the Messiah and the Holy Spirit has anointed me to preach the gospel and the good news to the poor. As a result, who traveled with Jesus were many disciples or many students who followed him wherever he went and studied under him all of the principles and teachings he relayed. Jesus also commissioned 12 apostles or 12 men who would be the individuals that laid the foundation for the first Christian churches. So Jesus was a preacher and a Bible teacher, and his most famous sermon was the Sermon on the Mount, which is most fully detailed in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, as well as Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 45. What the Sermon on the Mount does is it succinctly formalizes what Jesus said and what Jesus taught during his public ministry. And as I mentioned at the top, the Sermon on the Mount tells us the ethics, the morality, and the behavior of those individuals who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's important to note about the Sermon on the Mount is that it completely shatters whatever we would consider normal about the world. Jesus communicates that what is normal in the kingdom of heaven is abnormal in the kingdom of earth. I can remember the first time I read the Sermon on the Mount, I thought it was delightful and contained so many nuggets of wisdom and moral ethics. But the first time I read the Sermon on the Mount and I really understood what Jesus was saying, it became acutely aware how incomprehensibly difficult fulfilling the law of God really is. In the law of Moses, for example, God said that if a man commits adultery, that's punishable by death. But what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, if a man even thinks of adultery in his heart, he is now guilty of this sin. So in many ways in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made the Mosaic law harder by writing it on our hearts and telling us that in the kingdom of heaven, God not only requires purity of action, but also purity of mind and purity of heart. This is why a true understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is going to have two diametrically opposed reactions. One is extreme indignation against God for what he requires of us, and the other is extreme adoration of Jesus Christ for what he already did for us in living a life of perfect righteousness. And at the end of Matthew chapter 7, in chapter 7 verse 22, Jesus gives one of the most ominous warnings in the entire Bible. He essentially says on the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will then say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And as R.C. Sproul famously said, in the end, it doesn't matter if you or I, if we know Jesus. The real line in the sand is drawn based upon if Jesus knows you. And of course, those whom Jesus knows delight in his word and delight in his commandments. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is an example of the type of sermon that Jesus would preach and the type of teachings that Jesus would teach. 
And whenever Jesus would travel around Judea to teach the people, the Bible always says that he did so with authority, meaning he did so with substance. So in contrast to prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord. He spoke with authority because he was God in the flesh, relaying truth that was divine, that was inerrant, and was infallible. Now, one of the most popular means Jesus used to preach and to teach was to use a parable. Now, what is a parable? A parable is a story. It's an illustration that's meant to go alongside a deep, rich Bible truth, and by Jesus relaying this truth by means of an illustration, the real depth and richness of meaning becomes much more clear. Jesus told us why he taught in parables in Matthew 13, verses 10 to 11. So succinctly stated, parables clarified God's truth to those who are his, and it confused those who are not his. And this same word, divergent effects, still applies today in reality because compared to the time back then in antiquity, not much has changed. That is, when God speaks to us in his word, when God communicates and reveals himself to us in the Bible, it is revealed, understood, and clarified by those who are God's children, and it's confused, murky, and obscure to those who are not. A crucial idea that recirculates again and again in Christ's parables is the kingdom of heaven. So for example, in Matthew chapter 13, verses one to three, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And what that parable does, it unlocks a key to understanding life. And that is that to some, God has granted the ability to understand what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Without this divine gift, no one would be able to comprehend God's revelation in the Bible. So in this parable, there's a sower who sows seeds and some seeds fall beside the road, some seeds fall on rocky soil, some seeds fall in the thorns, and some seeds fall in the good soil. And what Jesus explained was that the parable of the sower tells us that whenever someone hears the word of God, there are only four possible responses. One response is that the evil one snatches the word away immediately, so it never takes root. The second response is temporary, because that seed doesn't have any substance or soil to plant itself in. The third response is choked up by the worries of the world. This is the seed that falls in the thorns. And the fourth response is the most positive one. That response is someone who hears the word of God, understands the word of God, receives the word of God, and that response is always fruitful. It's fruitful either 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. But in that response, God is the one who prepares the good soil before the seed is planted so that that seed can be effectual. So in Jesus explaining to us what the kingdom of heaven is like in relaying the parable of the sower, what becomes evidently clear is that God is the one who goes ahead to prepare the soil, which determines the response to hearing the word of God. In other words, salvation is of the Lord, salvation is not guaranteed by works, and all those who are members of the kingdom of heaven are there because of the gracious gift of God. In Luke chapter 15, probably one of the more famous parables is the parable of the prodigal son. 
There, Jesus relays the spiritual truth that he is someone who feels compassion and came into this world to seek and to save sinners. As the story goes, there was a prodigal son who turned away and wanted to go his own way, left his father's house, and spent time engaging in sinful, loose living. And then the son finally comes to his senses and returns to his father's house when the father does not reject him, but essentially feels compassion on his son and runs after him. And the point of this parable was to relay to us that Jesus is someone who feels compassion and runs after sinners, and therefore, as the God-man in the flesh, he was someone throughout his entire public ministry who associated with sinners. And for people who did his will, they would follow in his example because the loving father delights to have his children return to him. So that will end this part of episode 5.9. Next time in episode 5.9b, we'll talk about miracles, the transfiguration, and Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.